And thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast from Connect Church. We'd like to invite you to join us in person at 1101 West Grand in Ponca City, Oklahoma, or on Facebook Live. Go to connectchurchpc.com to learn more about how we are helping people connect every day. We are a people, connected people, all in God's love. this week we are going to have so much fun at bbs we always do and uh, last year was a little bit of a bummer we couldn't have on-site bbs we did virtual bbs and it was okay but we are so excited to have kids back on campus to be able to pour in their lives and introduce them to jesus christ and this morning i want to talk to you about one of my favorite things and here's why it's my favorite thing i remember when i was in high school and my, my dad was a pastor and he had a a library, and the overflow of his library ended up in my bedroom. And so t- sometimes I'd go through there, and I'm like, hey, I want to read this book, or I want to read this book, or I want to read this book. And I'd go up and ask him questions about books, his theology books, his religion books, all those books. But my favorite books of his that I read were books that talked about revival. And so this morning's message is called The Revival We Need, and that title is not unique to me. I actually took it from a book. It's no longer in print, but you can look it up on the internet, and you can read the whole thing for free on the internet, The Revival We Need. It was written in 1932, and I want to read to you an excerpt that comes out of that book, and I think it's so profound. It says, it is reported that there are 7,000 churches that did not win a single soul for Jesus Christ an entire year. That means that 7,000 ministers preached the gospel for a whole year without even reaching one lost soul. Supposing they preached, putting it on a low average of 40 Sundays, not including special meetings, that would mean that these 7,000 ministers preached 560,000 sermons in a single year. Think of the, the work, the labor, the money expended in salaries, etc., to make this possible, and yet 560,000 sermons preached by 7,000 ministers in 7,000 churches, the tens of thousands of hear, hearers during the period of 12 months failed to bring a single soul to Christ. And here's the understatement of 1932. Now, my brethren, there is something radically wrong somewhere. It is either with those 7,000 ministers or else with their 560,000 sermons or both. John Wesley, the founder of our movement, said, Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and I will turn the world upside down. Now, I will tell some stories throughout the message this morning of John Wesley, but what I think is so amazing about him is he was a man of only five feet, three inches tall, just a, just a little guy, and his sermons when he got up to preach, he didn't preach with boldness or, or, or tenacity, he would actually preach monotone. I couldn't even imagine. I mean, I had a professor in college who did not change the inflection of his voice, and I would fall asleep in his class every single day. 
Dr. Clifford Fansickle, he's with Jesus Christ now. But I, he had an 8 o'clock speech class where he learned how to give speeches in front of people, which I thought was funny that he would be monotone, but he was. And it got so bad that I would bring a pillow with me and lay in the back of the class and fall asleep on my desk. I know you're thinking, Mark, you, you're such a bad student. How, could, how would they ever trust you to be a pastor? I'm still trying to figure that one out. But John Wesley, this is what his theory was. I would rather than be moved by the Holy Spirit than by the word, I say. His contemporary was George Whitfield, and George Whitfield, when he got to preach, people would flock by the hundreds and thousands to come hear him speak, and, and they would talk about how you could hear him preach, and he would have this, this tenacity about him, and, and he would so move people that people would come to faith by hundreds and thousands. He was the Billy Graham of that era. But George Whitfield said, my problem was is I never taught people how to grow their faith. John Wesley did, and his people are still moving and shaking the world today, and my people are lost. Think about that. So John Wesley started a revival pre-Revolutionary War. The revival started in 1738, and it started with 12 men who got together and said, something has got to be done. And later, it turned into 60 men who, who formed a, a prayer gathering. I'll talk about it a little bit later. But those 12 and 60 men that started small ended up revolutionizing the world. In fact, Winston Churchill said this, if not for John Wesley, England would not be here today. Think about that. You know, the, the, the claim is always said of this, that God wants to move, and, and if the church is doing what the church is designed to do, we will transform the world. We will create a movement that will save the world. And so here we come to the book of Revelation. Just a, a little look ahead. During um, the month of August and a little bit into September, I'm going to be preaching a message series over the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. And I'm actually going to be reading a, a letter from Revelation in which Jesus spoke to the church of Ephesus. So starting in Revelation chapter 2. If you have U version, you can follow us along on there. But I'm reading out of the, the New, New International Version. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So where did this church in Ephesus come? And it's in the middle of Asia Minor, and, and I have a friend of mine, and he was studying it, and while he was studying it, God called him to be a missionary in that area because the church basically in the area in which it is, Asia Minor, Turkey, is no longer there. But at one point in time, the church in Ephesus was vibrant, it was life-changing, it transformed the community, and everybody, everybody talked about it. There were actually two Christian councils that met in Ephesus to talk about 
the Christian faith and to talk about what our belief in God is. They, they got together, they prayed, they spent time together, and that all happened in Ephesus. Started by Apollos, and Paul stops during his second missionary journey. He finds 12 people there. It was a struggling church, and so he teaches them about, about God, and he leaves, and he goes away, and he comes back on his third missionary journey, and they're still struggling. They haven't made any headway, so he spends three years teaching in Ephesus. That was the longest time he ever spent there, and during that time, he taught them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit wants to come in your life, how the Holy Spirit wants to transform your community, how the Holy Spirit wants to remove sin from your life. And as he spoke to them and he enabled them, this church, now get this, this church of 12 in the second largest city in the world, 250,000 people. Can you imagine 250,000 people in an ancient city? Second only to Rome. Influence, second only to Rome. Twelve people, within five years, 80% of Ephesus were Christians. That means 200,000 people were followers of Jesus Christ. How did it affect it? People came in and they got saved and they were transformed. They brought their idols because idolatry was so rampant there. And they were, they were worshiping Artemis. They were worshiping Diana and all these different goddesses. And they brought their silverware and their magic books, and they burned them. Get this. The bonfire they had that day is estimated to cost $4 million today's money. You know, I don't know how much it cost Jesus to be betrayed by Judas. $266. That kind of puts, a, puts in perspective, doesn't it? Now, here's, here's what I absolutely think is the craziest thing ever. When Paul leaves Ephesus, do you know who he leaves to be the pastor of that 200,000-member church? Timothy. 16-years-old Timothy. Can you imagine? I mean, Terry and I have a friend who, who, who uh, just resigned last week at, a, at a, a huge church, and he followed a legend to go up there, and I couldn't imagine following a legend. Now, I know Steve Kola, who passed here before me, he's a legend, but I couldn't imagine what it would be like for Timothy, 16 years old, to follow Paul. And the letters that Paul writes to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, the letters he writes to Ephesus, is all doing the same thing. Remember your teaching. Remember where you came from. Remember all these things. And he's just encouraging them and, and telling them to grow. In Acts 19.20, it says, in this way, talking about Ephesus, the word of the Lord spread spread quickly and grew in power. It was like playing gasoline. Terry was gone last night. She went down to watch Rin Collective down in Oklahoma City, and so um, I, I was at home by myself. And so I, I did what, you know, I watched two of my favorite Christmas movies while I was at home alone in July, Die Hard and Die Hard 2. And I thought about this in Die Hard 2. I'm like, at the end, there's this great scene at the end of the movie that explains what Christianity is to be all about. John McClane falls off the wing of the plane, undoes the gas tank, and gas is spewing out of the wing of the plane. And then he, set, then he lights his match and he throws it, and the fire follows the gasoline trail, the jet fuel, and the plane blows up. 
That's how we're to be. We are to be following the flame of Jesus Christ, and wherever we go, things just blow up into action. Not bad ways, but good ways. We should be transforming our community. It should be different. And we know that Connect Church is not the only Christian community in, in Ponca City. But can you imagine if across the Christian community, 80% of Ponca City was in church, 20,000 people on a Sunday morning? You're like, well, what are the numbers on a good Sunday? If everybody who claims to go to church went to church on the same day, you know what our percentage would be? And so the question is, are we satisfied with where we are? Do we just want to stay with where we are? And, and so the revival we need, the calling of God that we need, is to step out and say, I'm not satisfied. I want more. I want more of God. I want God to do more in my life. And Jesus starts by saying this thing. is that you're doing great things. So he writes to me, because I don't want you guys to think that you're not doing great things. You're doing great things. In Verse 2, it says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You're doing great things. When we go through church history, we know about the Reformation of Martin Luther, how he changed Catholicism and, and started the Protestant Reformation. And Protestant means they actually protested against some of the things that were going on. But what we don't know is that even that Reformation took place, it seemed to be short-lived because our Tendency is the drift, is the coast. So I was talking to, to John and, and, and the other day, and he was talking about biking and all these biking things they're doing, and he goes, have you ever, des- you ever think you could bike 40 miles? I'm like, yeah, I could, as long as we're going down the side of the mountain. Because then I don't have to pedal at all. I just sit there and coast, and I'm like, woohoo! I'm Greg Lamond. You know, you know who that is. I would say that I'm a... Uh, Armstrong, but, you know, I'm not doping, just so you guys know that. My blood is the same blood I was born with. But you, they, they grew, and, and Luther did all these great things. Calvin did all these great things, but still sin engulfed it. And in England, it was even worse. Get this, in England, at the time of the John Wesley and Charles Wesley came into recognition, they started the Bible, the first great awakening. They had signs up, and... and People would get paid daily from the coal mine. And so being a man, if I were to get paid daily, I'd know what I'd do. I'd bring the money home, my wife, my kids. we get groceries. we do all the things that we're supposed to do with our money. But that's not what was going on in dark England. Men were start stopping at the pubs, and they were spending not only all of their money, but they were keeping a rolling tab. So they were actually working for free and losing money. The infant mortality rate was 50%. That meant that uh, any baby that was born, half of them did not make it to the age of two. Can you imagine the wailing that took place in Dark England? Not only that, but these pubs would have signs up, and their signs would say, one penny drunk, two pennies dead drunk, the straw is free. What they mean is when you pass out, we're going to put a straw in your mouth for free so you don't suffocate or near own vomit. That's what's going on in England. The, the clergy were not concerned about the spiritual affairs of them. They had grown dormant, and they didn't care, and they were not vibrant in prayer. They had the common book of prayer, but they're like, oh, all I have to do is read through this. They were not fervent about God. They didn't care about God. And John Wesley even talked about it. He was raised in an Anglican church, and he came to America to be a missionary, and he realized that he started to teach people about God, and he knew nothing about God. 
But there's a group of people that so knew God that Wesley said, I wish I had their faith. And on New Year's Day, 1738, John Wesley said, and I quote from his journal, Tonight while reading the Epistle of Romans, my heart was strangely warmed. It changed his life. That, that second working of grace where God didn't just save him from sin, but ignited him to service. Last weekend, we were at district conference, and, and on Friday night, they had an ordination service where they would bring in ministers who had gone through the process of working on ordination, of doing classes, of being interviewed, of asking the tough questions, where are you in relationship with God? And they come forward, and, and, and they lay their hands on, and they kneel, and they pray. And Dr. Jim Dunn preached an amazing ordination service. And I've got to get him over here. He's the president of Oklahoma Western University. Got to get him over here so you guys can hear him preach. But he said something that has struck me, and it struck me so hard that I was like, man, God, you're not supposed to speak to me. I'm a pastor. You're not supposed to convict me, but, but he did anyway. Jim Dunn said this, I walk across the campus and I pray, God, all our best and brightest to go in the ministry. And it struck me because you know, Carrie and I, our oldest son, wants to go in the ministry. And I kept saying, God, I, I said, he, he, can, he can do ministry work, but he can, he can do something else with, with, with that brain that he's been given. And Jim Dunn says, I'm calling. I'm praying for God to call the smartest and the brightest, the most talented. I'm not saying that Jack is the brightest, the most talented, but it struck me. Because there's someone who's praying for my son to go in the ministry. There's someone who's praying for your sons and your daughters to go in the ministry. You don't even realize it. And they're feeling the call and they're feeling the uneasiness of what that would be like. Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know what's going on. In 1339, John Wesley wrote letters and asked for friends to gather and pray. They called it Love Fest. I'm not sure I would ever call it that nowadays because people would say, that's kind of weird. But in 1739, I guess that wasn't a weird name to call it. These 60 men gathered together in prayer, and about 3 a.m., they said the Spirit of God fell in that place, and it so transformed them. It transformed them. You know what happened out of that prayer, that Love Fest? The Wesleyan Revival began. The first great awakening began. 60 people turned in by 1,800, 1 million strong on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. So so cool to understand that they were praying, and and, and what happened here was John Wesley would get up every morning at 4 a.m. Now get this, he would get up at 4 a.m. and start preaching at 4.30. Can you imagine preaching at 4.30 in the morning? And he would preach the coal mines as coal miners were going in there. And he would lead in the repentance. He would lead in the faith in Christ. He would connect them with a, with a group of Bible believers who were desiring to grow in faith. And he would get them connected. And he would introduce them to Christ. And lives would be changed. And then he would say, hey, now that you're a Christian, now that you're being discipled, now that you're growing, it's your turn to go out there and preach. John Wesley talked about how he hated going out in the open fields and preach. But everywhere he preached, you know what they told him? Please don't come back. He'd preach at a church, and they'd say, hey, thanks for coming. Don't come back. 
He'd preach in another church and say, hey, thanks for coming. Don't come back. He kept getting disinvited to so many churches. The only place that would allow him to preach was the open field. And look at what he was able to do. He was able to change lives. Jesus says to this early church, you're keeping the faith strong. The second part of verse 2, it says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim the apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. He said, you're, you're doing great things. You're keeping the church pure. You're keeping it stable. Because throughout the, the empire at this time, there was a growing sense of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was where you could know things. And so philosophy was entering into the church, and it was watering down the gospel. And everybody was like, well, I just think the right thoughts, and I have the right ideas. Then I can be made right with God. And Timothy and Paul were like, no, that's not what it's about. You have to have a heart relationship. You have to be transformed. And if somebody comes in and says, hey, I have a word from the Lord, test them, ask them, make sure that they're actually hearing from God. Not everyone who says they have a word from the Lord actually has a word from the Lord. There are wolves out there in sheep's clothing. And they want to devour us. They want to destroy us. They want to feed us bad stuff. How do, we, how do we measure it? It goes against the Word of God. And so we read the Bible, we understand the Bible, and we digest the Bible. And in knowing what the Bible says, when someone comes to us and says something that's part true and part not true, we're like, hey, that doesn't sound right. And we pray, God, what does your Word say? And that's what Ephesus was doing. In 1496, this is, Martin Luther was only a teenager at this time, but the first kindles of revival started to hit Italy. There was a, a priest by the name of Savonora, Savonarola, and he started praying, God, use me, God, transform me, God, move on my heart, God, help me to know these things, and he started to see the things that were going on in the Holy Catholic Church and said, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. He started to speak out. And even as a, as a young boy, he was the heir to a very wealthy family, and he left all that behind to enter into the priesthood because God was calling him. God was speaking to him. And he wanted to commit his life to prayer. He wanted to commit his life to chasing after God. At the age of 22, he wrote a paper called Contempt of This World, in which he likened the sins of the current age to those of Sodom and Gomorrah. He slipped away without first telling his family, and he entered the monastery to begin his life of being a priest. He said, you know, when we look back, when we look at America, we look at our history, wouldn't we say that there are things that are going on that we just need God to take control of? The Spirit of the Lord came upon this priest, and he prophesied, to the church, to the city leaders in Florence, and said that they were going to be conquered, that an invading army from France was going to come in and take him over, and they laughed at him. And you know what happened? An invading army from France came upon him. Suddenly they started to listen. Hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's got some, he's got some skin in the game. 
the revival that came because of this young priest, people stopped reading filth and worldly books. Merchants made restitution to people for excessive profits they'd been making. Hoodlums and street urchins stopped singing sinful songs and began to sing hymns in the streets. Carnivals were forbidden and forsaken. Huge bonfires were made of worldly books and obscure pictures, masks and wigs. Children marched from house to house in procession, singing hymns and calling everybody to repent and empty their house of all vanity. If you're wondering about these masks, if you're wondering about these books, if you're wondering about the theater and why all this was being taken down, that was the pornography of that day. And they were doing it openly and saying, this is who we are, watch our sin, and they didn't care. But the revival came. The fire fell from God. Church bells ring, and every time people heard the church bells ring, they stopped what they were doing and started. That's what it means when the Spirit of God falls. But here's what Jesus is telling the church of Ephesus. He says, man, you're doing all these great things. I know, I'm going to trip and fall. We'll skip that back over there. Terry's over there the entire time. Every time I church, like, if I break a hip, it'd be okay. Yeah, wait until after VBS, okay. Paul, Jesus tells his early church at Ephesus, he goes, I know your first love. You guys remember your first love? And how your heart would flutter. Do you remember when you first fell in love and, and, and everything was awesome? I remember when, when Terry and I first started dating, she thought I was funny. She thought I was good looking. She, she, she thought that everything I said was right. And now, you know, we're married, and she's like, you're not that funny. You really aren't that funny. Do you think you're cute? You're not really that cute. And I, I, so I open up this book, and I said, remember your first love. Remember how far you've fallen. But there's something about that, because when we first become followers of Jesus Christ, and we read the Bible, everything is new to us. Everything is made alive to us. And we read it, and we're like, wow, this is so cool. And we start sharing these stories, and did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? And it just makes us come alive. And so in a sense, revival is what the church needs because we meet, need to become alive all the time. We need to renew it. We need to find ways that, to make ourselves come alive. It's like the couple that's sitting in the front cab of the pickup. The wife looks over to the husband. And she goes, remember when we were young and I used to sit in the middle of the, of the seat and you'd put your arm around me and I'd lay my head on your shoulder? And he looks at her and he goes, hey, I haven't moved. So many times we look at God and we say, man, remember when I used to be so passionate about a relationship? Remember when I would pray and I, it just seemed like I couldn't get enough of you? When I would read the Bible, I just couldn't read enough of it? And God said, I'm still here. I'm still here. And I'm still offering the same stuff. Jesus says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the church is the only church when it exists for others. What he's saying there is we are only the church when we're passionate about what God is passionate about. When we lose that passion, we lose what makes us unique. Evan Roberts, as a 13-year-old boy, 
this was his prayer. He prayed for God to fill him with his spirit, for God to send revival to Wales, and he prayed that their city would be transformed. Maybe that's why God used him. In 1904, Evan Roberts, at that time, he's a college student. He comes back to his hometown, and a preacher at his home church says, hey, why don't you fill the pulpit? You've been learning how to preach. You've been learning all these things, and we've got a youth night coming on. Why don't you just stand in the pulpit and preach? And I know how this works. When you're young and, and you go to fill the pulpit, the pastor says, hey, we'll let you do this at a time when nobody will show up and just be a good little boy. And so he's excited, finally gets to fill the pulpit. And, and it wasn't a large crowd, but the Spirit of God fell. And he continued to preach, and he had to actually stop preaching because people started coming to the altar, and they started to pray, and they started to ask God to forgive them their sins. They started to ask God to move. And then the craziest thing happened. That one-night revival turned into two nights, three nights, four nights, five nights, and they just kept coming back. And when people would come to hear young Evan Roberts preach, they would stop. This is awesome. They would stop by bars and pubs on their way there and grab drunk people out and bring them to church with them. They would stop and find a man who was lying in the gutter. They would pick him up and they'd bring him to church. There were stories told that while they were praying and asking God to move, people would be catatonic. They would be frozen, laid out solid on the ground for three or four hours and wake up knowing only this, that they were forgiven of their sins and that God had healed them of their sinful past. Nothing like that had ever happened in Wales. But you know what was the breeding ground for these revivals that were taking place? John and Charles Wesley. What happened in the 1700s spurred on for five to six generations after them People longing and desiring to chase after God. And so right when the revival fire would start to dim, it would catch up again, and a whole new people would get caught on the fire revival, and they would carry it on, and it would jump over the ocean, and it, it would do great things. And God says, I don't want my people to be sleepy. I don't want my people to, to not long for me. I want my people to be fully alive. Jesus says, why have you lost your first love? Why have you lost it? Here's the crazy thing about the, the, the revival in Wales. These were mostly coal miner people. Wales was the coal mine capital of the United Kingdom. These men who were getting saved would go to the coal mines, and the mules would start pulling for them because they didn't recognize their master speaking without cussing at them. They would talk about at these coal mines that they would have to stop work in the middle of the day because they would start singing hymns and somebody would start praying and somebody would come to faith in Jesus Christ because that was more important than anything else. Here's what Jesus says when we've lost our first love. Repent and return. Terry and I have two boys that lose everything all the time, all the time. You know, we ask them, they come to us and say, hey, I can't find my wallet, I can't find my keys, I can't find my shoes, I can't find fill in the blank. You know, we always ask them, where was the last place you had? And so then we've got to do the 
hard, arduous journey of retracing our steps. Well, I had it here. We go and we look there. Well, I, I remember I had it here, so we have to go back to that one. We just retrace it all the way back until we find the missing item. Jesus telling the church in Ephesus, he goes, hey, if you're not careful, I will remove your golden lampstand. It won't be there anymore. And the danger is always there that God will remove our golden lampstand if we move away from God. But sometimes we do this dance with God, don't we? I want to be close enough to God to not be too weird. But I don't want to get too far away from God that I'll miss out on the blessing. So what is the right distance to stand with God? And God keeps saying, I want you to be closer. Adams, New York, in 1821, had a brand new lawyer there. There were ten ladies in the church, and they would gather every day to pray that God would pour out his Holy Spirit upon Adams, New York. This brand-new lawyer joined this law firm, and one of the partners came up to him and said, here's how to be a great lawyer. Read the Bible and understand it, because all of our laws are based on the Bible. And so this young lawyer starts reading the Bible. And he's out in the cornfield one day, and he's reading the Bible, and he said right there, it struck him to the core that he was a sinner and he was far from grace and he needed a saving faith. And Jesus appeared to him and said, you can be forgiven. And right there in the middle of the cornfield, he asked for forgiveness and he was saved and his life was changed. He went to that church that night and he asked the ladies, he goes, I know you've been praying for revival. He goes, I don't know what it's gonna, if it's ever going to happen, but God saved me this morning and I was wondering if I could just stand up at your prayer meeting tonight and give testimony to it. This little church had so many people show up that they had to open up the windows and let people stand on the outside to hear what he had to say. He wasn't even able to get his testimony out when people started rushing to the altars. And at that time, in the church that Charles Finney was in, they didn't have altars and they didn't know what to do. And so he coined a term called the mourner's bench. And so people would come to the mourner's bench and they would mourn over their sins and ask for forgiveness over their sins and they would ask God, to, to take them and change them. And revival seemed to break out. I, I want you to put a bookmark on that mourner's bench. Here's the craziest thing ever. People who were running businesses would ask Charles Finney, the, 18th, the 19th century evangelist, to come and speak at their textiles, their industrial places of business. And he would come there, and they would shut everything down so that he could speak. And he always put a bench up there next to him. And he says, during my message, at any point, if you feel that you need to come forward and seek God, come and sit on the mourner's bench. And once you feel like you've prayed through, once you feel like God has forgiven you, get up from your bench and let somebody else sit down. And they would talk about it. There would just be a continuous flow at the mourner's bench where people would come, and they would sit there and ask for forgiveness, ask for God to change them because they were repenting and returning to God, and they were asking for God's grace to fall upon them. In fact, in Rochester, New York, which is right now really is God, but in Rochester, New York, they held a revival in which they closed down all the bars and transformed them in the church. There was a Canadian Mountie who was on the way down, had to pick up a prisoner in Rochester and take it back to, to Canada. 
And he said the closer he got to Rochester, he goes, the, the, he just started crying. He couldn't understand it. He fell off his horse a couple of times. He was weeping and didn't know why. And he came into town. And he goes to the bar, and he asked the bartender. He goes, hey, can I have a beer? The bartender says, I'm sorry. We don't serve alcohol here. He goes, uh, you're a bar. How do you not serve alcohol? And he goes, hey, if you want to wait around at 2 o'clock, we're going to have church service in here. At this point, the Canadian Mountie is not sure what he ate for breakfast that morning. But it, he's like, I am tripping big time. And this is like 100 years before tripping was a word. At the 2 o'clock in the afternoon worship service in the bar, he got saved. He picks up his uh, prisoner that he's take back to Canada. And would you believe that the prisoner had gotten saved while in that town in the prison cell? And revival moved with prisoner and mouth to Canada. See, God wants to do a reviving work, and the question is always, are we willing to stand where God wants us to stand? The history of the church from Pentecost till today shows a repeated need for revival. We constantly need to be awakened all the time because our tendency isn't to naturally draw close to God. Our tendency is the drift. And God says, I want you to be close. I want you to stay here. I was listening to a, a, a book this week by Alyssa Childers, and she said she was talking about how her and her friends would go out on a boat in, in the shallow part of the ocean, and every night before they would hunker down, they would drop an anchor over there, and then somebody would have to dive down and make sure the anchor was in the, the, the ground, in the soil. Otherwise, they would slowly drift out to sea. And they'd wake up the next morning and have no clue where they were. It, it doesn't take much for slow drift to really create something big. When John Wesley concluded his messages, he cried out to God and said this, Confirm your word, set your seal, and bear witness to your word, O God. These are the following words that he, he preached one time. We understand that we understood that many were offended at the cries of those whom the power of God came, among whom was a physician who was much afraid there might be a fraud or imposter in the case. Today, one whom he knew for many years, who was the first who broke out in strong cries and tears, he could hardly believe his own eyes and ears. He went and stood close to her and observed every symptom till great drops of sweat ran down her face and all her bones shook. He then knew not what to think, being clearly convinced it was not fraud, nor any natural disorder. But when both her soul and body were healed in a moment, knowledge, it was the finger of God. In 1859, revival broke out in Ireland, and it was accompanied by signs and wonders. People being healed, families being brought back together, addictions being erased. You see, the history of the church from Pentecost till today shows that we repeatedly need revival. In 1835, Titus Cohn went to one of the Hawaiian Islands to preach. It was kind of one of those things, hey, go out there, we're going to forget about you. And he, he went to this island to preach. And in 1837, revival fire broke out 
This island had 15,000 people in population, and he talked about daily preaching before six to 9,000 people. He said it was amazing, the move of God, to watch what God was doing. They would have nightly camp meeting services where they would set up a, a, a tent or an awning type of thing, and people would come in, and they'd raise up the, the size of it so you could hear for miles away what God was doing. At one meeting alone, 2,000 people were saved. Now get this. He did this. He set up a bell up by him. And he said, at any point tonight, if you ask Jesus Christ to come in your life, to forgive you your sins, to change you, to transform you, I want you to come up and ring the bell. And one night, they heard over 2,000 bells being rung. I mean, think about that the next time you leave, you leave Long John Silver's and there's a bell hanging there. Oh, what power that was. They talked about how drunkards were no longer drunk, how fighting men stopped fighting, how lifelong quarrels were made right. When he left that Hawaiian island, he said there were 11,960 persons saved, 15,000 people on the island. Can you imagine how that transformed that island? He had a worship service when she was doing baptisms with over 1,600 people being baptized. I mean, I've been, I've been baptized before, but I, I think getting baptized in Hawaii has got to be the coolest thing. He said, there's got to be a desire inside of us. I said, you know what, I, I want to move closer to God, not further away from him. And I want to be that church because if you were to go where Ephesus is now, to go to where the church was, it's not there. They had Apollos, who was a great church planter, planted church. They had Paul there who built him up. They, they saw 200,000 people in an ancient city of 250,000 followers of Jesus Christ, and now it's not there. Why? Because they left their first love, and God removed their lampstand. I think about that all the time. What would it look like if God removed our lampstand? And I realize that sometimes churches have a life cycle. And in that life cycle, all along the way, we always need a revival. We always need a moment to come back to God. And in those revival moments, and in that crushing, and in that pressing, God does something amazing. I'm reminded of this because when you look at the skylight, you see seven golden lampstands. You see a dove. And I think God wants us to keep our light shining. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to ask uh, Kelly to, to turn off the house lights. And I just want us to, to take a moment. I just want us to, to get serious before God and think about this. Ashley's going to sing. We're going to open the altar. Maybe you want to come to your families. Maybe you want to come and pray for Vacation Bible School. Maybe you just want to ask God just to pour out his grace upon you. You want to see revival take place. You want to see God do something in your life. And you're tired of the sin that so easily entangles. You want to get rid of all of that. And this is the place to do it.
God didn't die on the cross so we could flounder in sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross that we could live victoriously. In the crushing, in the pressing, we are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you into your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me your vessel. Make me your offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing, but all you have given me, Jesus brings new wine out of me. You know, the crushing hurts. But it's in that pain that we hear God speak. So I invite you, church, to join us this morning. To lay your burdens down. To come and ask God to speak. To come and ask God to move. To come and ask God to do amazing works. Because that's the beginning of what God wants to do.
It's always been your desire, God, to pour out your Holy Spirit. When, when we grow tired, we grow weary, you show up and you tell us that we are not alone. That we're not fighting this battle by ourselves, that you are on our side. At times you show up and say, hey, I'm here to tell you there's some things in your life that we want to deal with. And even though the pain, even though the crushing, even though pressing that out is painful, we know that growing in faith, coming close to you, God, experiencing your glory is what you want. I pray right now, God, that you would be with our church and be with our people, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just speak great and amazing truths into their lives. I pray, Lord, that they would experience your grace and your mercy. I pray, God, that they would experience your glory and your majesty. Lord, I pray that we would truly seek you above everything else, that you, God, would be our first love, that you, God, would be our holy desire, that nothing else comes close to you. Because when our relationship with you is where it needs to be, God, our relationship with others gets so much sweeter. And I just pray, God, that you would pour out grace and mercy upon us. Pray this in your holy name.